I cannot doubt his love. I cannot doubt his faithfulness. Your faith grows in valleys like these, not on the tops of the mountains. I love mountaintop experiences, but that's not where my faith grows. It grows in the trenches. It grows when it's hard, when you don't understand, when life doesn't make sense. That's when you cling to God by faith, not by sight, not by wisdom, not by understanding. I have none of those things. But I will stand on the promises of God, and I will do that till the day the trumpet sounds or he calls me home. I will stand on the promises of God. That's what faith is, and this is where faith grows. Allow that. Don't diminish the work that God wants to do when your circumstances are adverse. That's where you're supposed to be by the will of God, because there and there alone can your grace grow. As you don't understand, so you stand on the promises of God. You don't see the outcome. You don't see how God can be glorified in this. We tend to be obsessed with circumstance rather than faith. Stand in your faith. There is nothing that pleases God more. Understand that. The exercise of your faith is more precious to him than silver and gold by the billions of dollars. We are in this morning, Philippians chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there in the New Testament, an epistle that defies all circumstance because Paul's in jail and the theme of the book is rejoicing. Boy, if there was ever an oxymoron in Scripture, this is it. He's sitting in jail, falsely accused. It's, an, it's something if you're sitting in jail and you deserve it. Some of you have been there and you go, yeah, I wasn't pleasant at all. Yeah, but you were there because you've done bad things. Paul's there because he did good things. He was sharing the gospel. He was telling people about Jesus Christ. But that's a threat to the Orthodox Jewish community of his day. He's been in jail now for two years. Would have been natural enough for him to say, why? Why am I here? What did I do? I didn't do anything. I don't deserve this. Would have been easy for him to feel sorry for himself. Would have been easy, listen carefully to me. It would have been easy for him to have gotten mad at God. You know why it got so quiet? Because you've done that before. Just nod your head and go, yep, been there, done that, Pastor Jim. Can I tell you, God's got broad enough shoulders to handle that. He understands how weak and how frail and how limited we are in our understanding and how gracious He is as a loving Heavenly Father that will take care of His people. The church that He's writing to is, oh, 10, 12 years old by this point in time, and the church has grown to the point that it has multiple overseers and deacons. I like that. Just servants that God had raised up. I'm privileged in this church to have guys around me at a church board, elders. We got all of that here, and I just love it. It's, it's the blessing of God. They have pooled together their meager resources and sent him a financial gift so he could continue renting his house, awaiting his trial before Nero without having to be thrust into a dungeon. He is, as a Roman citizen, as yet un, not found guilty of anything. He's awaiting trial, but he has the privilege of being able to rent a house if he can afford that. Understand the sense of justice that we have in America is founded upon Judeo-Christian principles. You are innocent until this country, until you are proven guilty. Okay? As, a, as Colorado is considering who goes on the ballot this November, 
and, and went to our Supreme Court recently that there was one person, oh, you can't put him on there because of what he did on January 6th. He was never even accused of anything. He was let, let alone found, he was not found guilty of anything. And yet the Supreme Court of, the, of Colorado has deemed who can and who can't be on the ballot. That's not right. They don't have that jurisdiction. They don't have that right. I'm sure that, I'm sure that individual is saying, you know, my, my not being able to be on the ballot, well, that's not right. It's not. I pray that he's trusting God, standing on the promises of God and leaning not unto his own understanding. I believe that God ultimately is in control, but have you noticed, sometimes deliverance is not always immediate. I wish it was. I wish I could tell you that when you pray, it will instantly be answered. I can tell you this, as soon as you pray, it's instantly heard. That's what Daniel tells us. The book of Daniel, Daniel prayed 21 days. He's waiting in prayer for the answer. 21 days. He's laboring in prayer as often as he's awake. The angel comes to him and says, Daniel, from the first moment your prayers were offered up, God heard. And the angel was sent and he was opposed by Satan for 21 days. You persevered in prayer. The angel called upon Michael. He came and, and helped him in the battle. There are forces at work that are unseen, both good and bad. There are angels working on your behalf. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to help those who are to inherit salvation? Hebrews tells us, absolutely. But just as surely as angels are real, so are demons. Those are fallen angels. They will always oppose the work of God. There are battles going on in this room you can't see. Some of those forces are playing with your head. Some of them are inserting thoughts in your mind. Godly or ungodly, there are forces at work, seen and unseen. That's why the Bible encourages us to take captive every thought. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul switches gears a little bit from this theme of, of thanksgiving and why he is where he is. It's by the will of God. And he says, it doesn't matter where I'm at, because he had said in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live, regardless of where I'm at, regardless of what's going on, for me to live is Christ. That's all that matters. I'm in Christ. And so wherever he wants to put me, whatever he wants to do in me, on me, through me, I'm good. I'm good with it all. For me to live is Christ. What's the worst that can happen to me? Die? He said to die is gain. That's even better, man. I'm just beamed right into the presence of the Lord God Almighty. Hallelujah. So let Satan throw at me what he will. I will stand firm in my faith because I know the very worst thing that he can do to me is persecute me to the point of death and I wind up standing before the throne of grace giving honor and glory and praise to the one whom I have loved since before I got saved. He says in chapter 2 and verse 1, if you guys, if these church members, these 10 to 12-year-old Christians now, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, well, I'm encouraged. I'm with Christ. I am united with him. I mean, that's like hand in a glove kind of a situation. I'm right there with Jesus. Jesus said in John's gospel, no man can take him out of my hands. 
Nobody can do that. So we are, are you united with Christ? Yeah. Ooh, that's a good place to be. Paul goes on, he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, have you received his love? Do you know that you're loved? Do you know that you're forgiven? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You gave him your heart in response to his initial outpouring of love. If you have any comfort from his love, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, when do you get the Holy Spirit? The moment you surrender to Christ. You're saved. You're born again. You're filled with his Spirit. If there is any tenderness and compassion within you at all, then make my joy complete, Paul says, by these things. Be like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit, and purpose. What he's referring to is, it would give me great joy if you guys would pursue Christian maturity. Don't just save and sit there in a state of arrested development for the rest of your life. Keep on growing in Christ. If you have any encouragement from being with Christ, any comfort, any fellowship with the Spirit, then be like-minded. Grow in your faith. True maturity is what it is to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. It's not enough that we content ourselves with the fact that I'm saved. I'm, I'm happy I'm saved. Don't get me wrong there. But I don't want to be content with that. I want to push on to maturity. I want to grow as a Christian. I don't want to be easily offended. I don't want to be ignorant of Scripture. I don't want to be prayerless. I want to grow in my faith. Push on to maturity. So what he's saying is pursue unity and love. Being one in spirit means pursuing the same lofty spiritual goals. I want to be more like Jesus. It doesn't happen by accident. If you are not intentional in seeking the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it won't happen. It's up to you now. You want to grow? You want to grow in Christ? You want to mature? You want more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Then seek God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God says, when you do that, I will be found by you. What is keeping you from being the most spiritually, spirit-filled person on planet Earth today? What's keeping you from being that person? You. You. Can't pin that on anybody else. You can be as close to Christ as you want to be. Depends on how bad you want it. Are you in his word every day? Are you in prayer every day? Are you seeking him? Do you sing songs or do you worship on Sunday morning, Wednesdays when we gather? Have you given him all of your heart, all of your life, all of your dreams and goals and hopes and aspirations? Have you died that he can live in and through you? Have you surrendered everything to him? Well, Paul uses a series of, of what's called first-class conditional statements, and, which means it starts with the word if. It's a conditional statement. If, four times he says there in verse 1, if you have any of these things, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Literally fill up my cup of joy, Paul says. His desire is to see this unity that comes from being like-minded. It means we're committed to working together for God's purposes. 
We're committed to speaking well of each other. We're committed to helping each other, praying for each other, loving on each other. That's what our fellowship opportunities are about in this church. Get to know people. Get to love on them. Go out to lunch afterwards. Have the same attitude that Christ had. Look at verse 3 before we get there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Boy, the world in a nutshell is ambitious to an ungodly extent. Nothing wrong with wanting to get ahead. But when you're willing to get ahead at the expense of everyone else around you, it is ungodly. When all you live for is money instead of God, your selfish ambition has gotten out of control. Your ambition should be to be a godly Christian. That should be your first and foremost ambition, not to get rich. Jesus said, ask and seek and knock, and and these things, your heavenly Father knows what you have need of even before you ask, he said. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All of this other stuff will be added to you. But we tend to let our priorities get away from us, don't we? So we chase after food, clothing, and shelter. The Bible says chase after God. He'll give you food, clothing, and shelter. But we've got to get our priorities right. You want to be blessed? Do it God's way. Do it God's way. Seek Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The world will get in your way. Social media will get in the way. Sports will get in your way. Your hobbies will get in the way. And they will rob you of the time meant to be spent in communion with the Lord. Don't let the world and Satan dictate the use of your discretionary time. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, literally empty pride. I think that and vain conceit are the mortal enemies of unity and harmony within the church. In fact, selfish ambition is listed in Galatians 5.20 as one of the deeds of the old sinful nature. I don't want to give in to that. But he says in verse 3, but in humility. Boy, humility, I'll tell you, is the source of Christian unity and harmony. Humility. Man, pray for a baptism of humility. It allows you to love other people and put them first instead of yourself. God doesn't want selfish children. He wants gracious and generous and loving children. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. But you have to put yourself in a place every day where the Holy Spirit can meet you. A time of prayer, a time of worship, a time of searching out His Word, His promises. What does God require of me? Ask, God, what do you have for me today? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to talk to? Put in my heart and my mind the things that you want me to to do and, and say today that would give you glory and honor and praise. But in humility, verse 3, consider others as better than yourselves. That's so contrary to the world. So contrary to the world. Everybody out there, every time you turn on the TV, you got a whole host of folks bragging on themselves. We're known for their celebrity. Interesting to me that Hollywood spends the first half of its life trying to be famous and the second half of their life trying to keep the paparazzi away from them because they don't like being famous. Well, what do you want? 
You want the attention or not? Oh, they want the attention until they get too much of it, and then they want to back up, and they buy a house up in Aspen and fly in on their jet airplanes on the weekends. It strikes me as crazy. Just crazy. Live for God, and everything else will turn out just fine. Verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. (laughs) Talk about someone else rather than yourself from time to time. Here's an old pastor's secret. Maybe you don't know this. I'm going to share it with you. Tip your hand because this is what pastors do in every church that you'll ever go to. The easiest way to get a stranger to talk to the pastor is ask him to talk about themselves. Well, what what do you do for a living? Well, would you know, you, 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 you. And people can talk about themselves for hours on hand. Here's what they never say to the pastor. Well, what about you, pastor? What's your, what's your deal? Where do you come from? How did you get into the ministry? How did you get saved? Never heard those questions. Because people by nature would rather talk about themselves than anything else. Ah, that's wrong. That's wrong. It's the easiest thing for you to talk about because then it gives you opportunity to brag on yourself. Do you know where I've been? You know what I've done? No matter what, what name college I went to? You know how long I've been in the ministry? Well, you can be prideful about so many things. Do you know how long I've been the pastor of this church? Do you know how old I am? Do you know how long I've known Jesus? Stop it. Stop it. Just love on each other. Get somebody, uh, engage them in conversation. Act like you care about them more than yourself. Get outside of yourself. Well, I'm an introvert. No, you're not, because you will talk about you all day long. You're not an introvert. (laughs) You just don't care about other people. And you hide behind the excuse of being an introvert. Some people are laughing, (laughs) and other people are hanging their head in shame. Oh, crud, he's talking about me. You bet I am. You bet I am. If you came to this church and didn't expect sermons to be practical, you came to the wrong church. Christianity is a commitment to grow in Christ. That's why you should be here. If you're here for any other reason, you came for the wrong thing. This is a place where you meet God. This is a place where you open up your heart and say, God, I know I'm slacking. I know I'm falling short, but you love me anyway. Would you change me? Would you equip me? Would you fill me? Fill me with what? Love and joy and peace and patience, Lord, because this stuff doesn't come natural to me. And i got to get outside of me if I'm ever going to be an ambassador for you. It says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. We've got to recapture that vision for the church to walk the way he walked. And Paul is going to bring that out for us. Verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to those interests of others. And here's why. Because that was the attitude of Christ, verse 5. That's why you should do it. That was the attitude of Christ. We're so privileged to be able to have each other in this body. I consider myself highly privileged that you would care enough to pray for my granddaughter. Thank you. It means the world to me. But if we don't get in each other's lives more than we do, 
then we're never going to be able to meet each other in those hard times. We won't feel the freedom to come alongside of each other because you get the overwhelming impression nobody really cares. I know you do. and That's why you pray, and that's why you are precious to me and to God. I thank you so very, very, very much for your prayers and your continued prayers as things continue to unfold. But we want to pray for you when you go through similar difficulties in your life. Don't sit it out on the, on the bench by yourself. Get somebody praying for you. Get the pastoral staff, anybody in the congregation. Brother, sister, would you pray for me? In our greeting times, don't be superficial. Here's, here's what we can do, and here's the easiest thing to do. How are you doing? Oh, fine, fine, fine. Sure, fine, champ. Yep, you're good. Yeah, whatever. Who are you? Yeah, my name's Yeah. Mm-hmm. What? Uh-huh. Ah, that's pretty superficial. Here's what you could do. Here's what you could do. You can come down off the stage. This is always intimidating for everybody on the front row, especially. Because you're wondering, who's the target today? Here's what you could do. Hey, my name's Jim. What's your name? Nice to meet you, Jim. I'm Andrew. Andrew, good to meet you. What can I pray for you about today? Um, maybe good health and good spirits. Good health and good spirits. All right, you doing okay? Yeah. Look me straight in the eyes when you say that. Heavenly Father, I pray for Andrew that you bless his socks off, fill him with your Holy Spirit, renewing him the joy of your salvation, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. That's what I want our greeting time to look like in this church. Look him in the eyes. Don't let him break gaze, okay? Love on him. Encourage him. Get in their face. Find out how they're doing because if the eyes are the windows to the soul, I'll I'll just tell you when you're being superficial with me. I say, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. No, you're not. I'm looking right in your eyes, dog, and you don't look fine at all. You look like you've been weaned on lemons, man. What's the deal? Why would you do that? Well, that's uncomfortable, Pastor Jim. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about loving each other enough to get inside each other a little bit. This is reality. This is true Christianity. And dear friends, we got to recapture it because otherwise we settle for something that's superficial. There's a word for that used in Revelation chapter 3 to describe that kind of a church. And you know what it is? Lukewarm. I don't want to ever be that. I'd rather be dead than lukewarm. So in your greeting time, don't be superficial. Get in each other's face. Love on each other. Look in their eyes. They are the windows to the soul. You can always tell how somebody's doing, looking deep enough and taking enough time to care. Your attitude, verse 5, should be the same as it was in Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, attitude is everything. My wife had this plaque in the house. I think it's still kicking around somewhere that says, attitude is everything. Pick a good one. I like that little thing. It reminds me that uh, we carry an attitude with us all, all the time. Uh, I, I, most of you in this room are probably not private or commercial pilots, but there is a gauge inside of all airplanes called the attitude indicator. 
tells you whether you're going up or down. It's an attitude indicator. And I've always looked at that dial and went, well, I wonder how's my attitude. The airplane's attitude's just fine. I can keep it on the numbers. But how's my attitude? An attitude indicator. Pick a, pick a good attitude. It's in the present tense in the original language, which means make sure you keep tabs on that attitude. Keep picking a good attitude. And it's a command. It's not an option, according to Paul. It's something that we have to do over and over again. And notice again, the emphasis isn't on how we feel. Doesn't matter how you feel. How you feel has to do with hmm, whether you've got a head cold or not, or whether you took medication for that head cold, or if you had green pizza last night for dinner. Your, all your feelings can depend on a whole lot of things. Your faith can't be that shallow. It has to supersede feelings because it is in the realm of faith. Faith. Nothing pleases God more than the exercise of your faith. How we feel depends on our heart. How we think depends on our mind. And faith supersedes both. It's, it has its eyes not on my ability to understand, not on where my heart is at, but where God is and who He is, His promises. That's where my attitude ultimately comes from. What's my mental attitude towards other people? What's your mental attitude towards yourself? I exercise that on a fairly regular basis. In fact, every time I look in the mirror. And if you look in the mirror this morning... Look around the room, you can tell who looked in the mirror and who didn't. <laughs> You're not going to wear that, are you? <laughs> no, of course not. I just wanted to see if I could press the wrinkles out before I hang it back up in the closet. <laughs> What's your attitude towards yourself? Is it based on how pretty you are, how young or old you are, how experienced or wisdom or educated you are, whether you have a double chin or not? What's your attitude about yourself based on? Here's what it should be based on. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. That's your identity. Your identity in heaven is not based on your gender or skill or age or anything like that whatsoever. But how I think about myself all depends on how I see myself in God. So again, I encourage you to spend more time in the Word of God because your focus then will be on Him and seeing yourself rightly because you see Him who made you rightly. Amen. Simple. Simple. Let this mind be in you. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as Christ, who being in very nature God, the Greek word is morphe. It's where we get the term metamorphosis. The very form, the very image, the very, the very imprint of God, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And in other words, just because Jesus came to earth did not feel that he was now inferior. He knew who he was in his Father. He didn't have to cling to, hey, don't you know who I am, dog? Did you notice he never had to say that? He didn't have to, he was not that insecure. He knew he was the son of God. He knew what he came to do. He knew that he was Israel's Messiah. You need to look in the mirror and say, I'm a child of God. 
He loves me. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose for me that's going to be played out today in ways that I can't anticipate now. So, God, I just yield myself to you. Whatever you want to do in, on, and through me is peachy kino. I'm good because I'm submitted. I'm surrendered. That takes place every day, fresh. It's how you got saved in the first place. It's how you continue every single day to walk with him, to walk in him. Jesus did not cling to his, to who he knew himself to be. But verse 7, instead, (laughs) made of himself nothing, taking the very nature, the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. This is one of the most important theological sections of the entire New Testament. It's one of the strongest assertions in the New Testament of the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully God. He did not stop being God when he came to earth. The most ridiculous thing I've seen recently on, I got Xfinity cable at my house, and they got this section where you can go to school and get advanced learning for free on a couple of different channels. And one of these stupid programs of theirs said, it's entitled, How Jesus Became God. I had to repeat it and push backward just to make sure I'd seen that blasphemy correctly. I, I, and I said, played it back three or four times, and I said, there's some really stupid people working for Xfinity. Jesus has always been God. He took upon himself human flesh to identify with us in our weaknesses, but he didn't surrender his divinity. He set aside his divine prerogatives. What does that mean? It means while he could have at any time called down 12 legions of angels to help him before he embraced the cross and chose not to, it also means that everything he did was because the Holy Spirit inside of him was encouraging him to do that. Jesus at one point in time in John's gospel said to this to his disciples, I only do the things that my heavenly Father tells me to do. I only say the things that my heavenly Father tells me to say. In other words, Jesus, in the limitations of the human flesh that he took upon himself, was as limited as you or I, and as dependent upon the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the person of God to do anything in his life. Don't think that Jesus could have at any time, you know, just tapped into the knowledge of the universe which he possessed. He walked in a dependent fashion upon his heavenly Father because that's how he wants you and I to walk. People have asked me, well, when Jesus was born, did he have an IQ of 150 trillion when he was born? No. It says he grew. Not only physically, but spiritually. He grew in his understanding. He read the Word of God. He prayed. He learned to be a spiritual man. He knew who he was. He was the Son of God. He knew what he came to do. But he understand this. He had access to the same power and resource that you and I do. He had access to his Heavenly Father. Do you? It's called prayer. He had access to the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you? Of course you do. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit when you got saved. He wants you dependent not upon you, but upon him. 
That's why Proverbs says, lean not unto your own understanding, but in all of your ways to acknowledge him, and he will. He will direct your paths. He's not left you on your own. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he's called the Spirit of God. And sometimes he's called the Spirit of Jesus. Well, which is he? Yes. We've just explained the Trinity to you in words that you have not perhaps heard. Well, people say, well, I don't see the name Trinity in the Bible. Trinity is a Latin word. What makes you think it's going to be found in a Greek Bible? Good grief. Is the concept of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present throughout the Bible? It starts in Genesis 1 where God said, the word God is Elohim, the I am ending at the end of that Hebrew word denotes plurality in excess of two. So already in the very first verse of the entire Bible, we already have a hint that in some way, shape, or form that we don't know yet, that God exists in a plurality of persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the Godhead. But otherwise, what kind of theology do you have that explains the I am ending, denoting plurality? Hmm. Then in the next chapter, God said even something else. There apparently is dialogue within the Godhead. As God said, let us make man in our own image. Do you see the plurals that are in that sentence? Either you have a schizophrenic God with a multiple personality disorder talking to himself, or you have to acknowledge that in some way, shape, or form, God exists within a plurality in ways that I don't quite and fully understand. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But otherwise, you're left with a rather neurotic schizoid God. Who's he talking to? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are dialoguing. You see all three present at creation. At the baptism of Jesus, Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon him in the form of a dove, and the Father speaks from heaven. If you don't believe in the Trinity, what? Jesus is a professional ventriloquist? Really? Projecting his voice up there, trying to deceive us? Does that sound like Jesus to you? Of course not. Because of the preponderance of biblical evidence, I have to rather heavily lean toward within the Godhead is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. Are they God? Yes. There is one Godhead manifesting themselves in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You go, well, why is that necessary? Because Jesus had to take upon himself human flesh so he could hang on a cross. If God is spirit, you're going to have a difficult time driving spikes through his hand and feet. It's like trying to nail a cloud to your blackboard. Do you see the frustration? You can't do that. So God would have to, at some point in time in creation, he would have to take upon himself the limitations of human flesh, not only to identify with us, but then to be able to accept the beating and the scars and the stripes and the spikes that should have been ours. So the incarnation was essential. It was necessary when Adam and Eve sinned. 
And then Jesus said, because I'm ascending back to the Father, I'm not leaving you on your own, so I've got to ascend so I can send the Holy Spirit to continue the work that I've already began in you guys. And he breathed upon his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he has been with us since. So I see the essential of having God reveal himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I see the the perfect sense that that makes now. Each having a specific and unique role, but all of them having the same heart, mind, the same essence is the word that Tertullian came up with in the fourth century, who was the first Latin father to develop a consistent theology of the Trinity. And he wrote that book in Latin. Tertullian's the the first Latin church father. He wrote that book called The Trinity. It's pronounced slightly different in Latin, but you and I don't speak Latin anyway, so who cares? The whole idea is the Trinity is true. It's not that I can explain it all any more than I can fathom everything there is to know in the universe. But I believe the evidence of Scripture. I believe in the evidence of Scripture whether I can fully understand it or not, and that's where faith comes in. It says in verse 8, being found in appearance that as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He did that because he loves you, not because he had to. You ought to thank God that I'm not God. Because if I had have been the son of God and the father said, son, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to step down out of heaven to that sinful, fallen, Christ-rejecting, God-hating world that deifies evil and sin. I want you to, number one, give up heaven and go down there. And I'd be going, oh, that's a long shot, Dad. And then he said, but that's not all, son. I'm going to send you down there, and they're going to beat you and mock you and spit on you and crucify you, flog you till your back is lashed open and muscles laid bare to the point nearly of death. That's what awaits you when I send you from heaven to earth. What do you think? The picture is getting worse and worse, Dad, by the minute. But I'll raise you from the dead. And countless billions will follow in faith. (sighs) Jesus didn't have to come for you. He chose to come for you. That's how loved you are. You don't love yourself that much. And nobody on this planet loves you that much. But that's how much God loved you. And when Jesus came, he humbled himself. Verse 8 says, to the point that he was willing to embrace a common criminal's death in Roman Palestine and be crucified, taking spikes that should have been driven through my hands and feet, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, because of his humility. Here's the path to victory, dear friends. Note this carefully. Once you humble yourself before God, he will raise you up and eternal glory is in your destiny. You understand that? If you humble yourself before God, he will raise you up and eternal destiny is, is, is your glory. So, therefore, anytime you verse 9, you see therefore, you have to ask yourself the question, what's it there for? 
because Jesus came, because Jesus humbled himself, because he died to himself and rose again, because of that, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. That's what's in your future and mine. The story doesn't end with crucifixion and death. Not for any of us. But we will be raised to new life. Someday when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, which we are still alive and are left till the Lord's coming, we'll meet Him in the clouds. Be with the Lord forever. That's a glorious promise of Scripture. Therefore God exalted in verse 9 to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like it or not, the demons are going to someday bow before the throne of Christ and say, you're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the King of the world, the King of the universe. Every demon will have to bow. Every angel in heaven above will be joyfully on their face before the Lord. And every person on this earth ever born from Adam and Eve's time to the present moment will stand before him someday and have to acknowledge the fact that he is indeed the Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Satan himself will have to declare that because it's true. It's true. When we walk into eternity before the judgment seat of Christ, let me tell you, the only issue on the, on the plate is truth. A cynical pilot said, what is truth? It's so relative today. Well, that's your truth. What? What kind of nonsense is that? It's either true or it's not true. It's not your truth or my truth any more than it's your gravity or my gravity. Or my sunlight versus your sun. That's stupid talk. What do they teach these kids in universities these days? I don't know, but as long as our universities are led by pagans, we can expect pagan nonsense to come out of our kids' mouths. It takes years to retrain them after they get out of school. <sighs> Tell them about Jesus as often as you can. Your exaltation and mine is coming, according to verse 9. And verse 10 reminds us that all will bow before his throne someday. Someday. When? I don't know. Doesn't matter to me. It's in God's hands. The timing is his, not mine. So I don't need to concern myself with, with such detail. But here's what I get out of the passage, and I want you to take home. God sur Jesus surrendered to the will of his heavenly Father in everything. In everything. That's all he wants from you and I. Total surrender. Stop trying to overthink life. Well, what does this mean? What do they mean by that, that meme or that text? What do, you know, trying to figure, why is this happening to me? Stop, 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 stop. God is here today telling you, hey, I got this. You don't. I'm not asking you to figure it out. Trust me. That's all I'm asking you to do. Exercise your faith. That's all I'm asking you to do. It doesn't sound so hard, but we tend to complicate these things. Well, I don't understand. I don't can't figure. Well, how does it stop? Keep it simple, sheep. That's the kiss principle, isn't it? <laughs> Keep it simple. I mean, 
You're trying to figure God out and what he's doing? What's your IQ? What do you reckon his is? That's like an amoeba trying to figure out the general laws of, of relativity according to Einstein. Are you kidding? Just trust God. Don't try to figure him out. You can't. What's he doing? Leave it in his hands. Trust me, the outcome's going to be just fine. As long as we keep our eyes on him. Jesus lived a life of complete and total surrender to the perfect will of God. And that's our example. That's our example. Humble yourself before the Lord and you're going to turn out just fine. Okay? I want this as, as simple as possible. Practical Christianity is not difficult. It's very simple. It's not always easy. I get that. Life isn't easy. But I know this. God loves you. And the God you serve and have given your heart and life to has this. Whatever you face, we will all face a wide variety of circumstances of all kinds. I've shared with you this morning what me and my family are going through. That's not to say what you're going through is not important. It is of critical importance. I want to love on you and encourage you and pray for you about the things that you go through. Because it's only a matter of time for the shoes on the other foot. We all go through these things. James says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Because that's where our faith grows. That's why he said, count it all joy. Not because he was masochistic. Not because he said, yeah, hurt me till it feels good. Nobody thinks that way. Nobody with a mind in their head anyway. No, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, the carrier of this letter, Jesus Christ himself. He, we have some wonderful examples before us in Scripture. People that were selfless, servant-minded, humble, joyful, and imitating the example of Christ. It's a wonderful example to us. Chapter 2 is yours. Do you realize what privilege we have this, this side of the cross of Jesus Christ to have the Word of God in our hands? The apostles didn't. All they had was the Old Testament. You got the New Testament. You know what it says. You know who came and what He did. All He wants you to do now is stand in faith. Stand in faith. That's in fact, let's all stand together. In faith, we'll confess our faith, Tim, as the praise band comes up. We're going to close in prayer. We also have a baptism immediately uh, following our service that we all want to be a part of, uh, for sure. But let's pray for just a moment. Lord, I just bear 